without doubt one of the most discouraging and disturbing side effects I have as a result of my illness and of lately the result of the stroke that I had not too many weeks ago is that I have in some ways lost my ability to focus. That was no more clearly seen than last Lord's Day. We had been to Alabama. I had preached there in Munford, Alabama that morning. Uh, made a quick trip back to my mother's, ate a bite of lunch, and we headed for the house. And it's always our goal to make it back home if we can so that we do not have to stop anywhere else to worship. And so as we were making that trek, Jennifer had already driven all the way over there on Friday afternoon, had done all the driving all day Saturday and Sunday to that point, and had driven home till at least till we got just this side of Tuscaloosa. I was asleep. The children had fallen asleep. And she said she was about to be asleep. And so I roused up one time, and she said, you're going to have to trade. We've got to swap drivers. So I did. And I got over in the driver's seat, and she dozed off just a little bit. It got a little too quiet for me in the cab of the car, so I immediately put in a little headphone I carry with me where I can listen to some good congregational gospel singing, if you want to call it that. I was listening to that like I always do. And on three occasions, she woke up from her slumber and said, Don't forget to turn off at exit 32. Now, we have several choices on the way home. We can turn at exit 40. We can do exit 32. We can come all the mail and Meridian. If we really just want to waste time, we can drive all the way to Newton and still get here. But the most efficient way that saves us about an hour or so is to turn at exit 32. And I kept assuring her out of frustration, really, I've got it. You let me handle this. And I did see exit 32, but I saw it in my rearview mirror. And I, like any good husband would do, I immediately, my neck snapped to see if maybe Jennifer was still asleep. Although I knew it would be several miles before I could turn around and correct my mistake, I was hoping to be able to do that, but of course, we're not that lucky. She was awake, had woken up anyway, and she saw the same exit in the same mirror. And she was very kind. She didn't really have a lot to say, just pointed out, as she ought, that we missed the exit. And we wasted a lot of time doing that. It was a squeeze to get here. We made it, but it was a squeeze to get here then in time of worship, and that was all my fault because I had lost focus. I believed I had focus. I was certain I could focus, but I had lost focus. And that's detrimental physically. In that trip, it could have cost us much more time than it did, but it's very detrimental spiritually. Matter of fact, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 19. But even in the same context, we've already focused on verse 33. We'll come back to it again when we reach it again in the context. The Bible there says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, to seek first is for God to really say, Focus. Be sure that you focus on there the kingdom of heaven. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, we find Paul's version of a similar 
account when he says that we are to set our affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. And that has to do with focus. It has to do with placing our eye on the right thing, and that is heaven and the Godhead of heaven. We can even be certain of that because the Hebrew writer would pen in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 right behind reminding us that we're in the midst of a great race, a race that cannot be ran without we set off that which easily besets us, which he said is sin. But verse 2, he reminds us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What does he mean? He said focus. Maintain your focus. And that's what we need. And in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, if you really take an estimation of the whole context that carries itself near about to the end of the chapter, you'll find out Jesus speaks also about focus. Because there in verse 19, he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth nor rust doth Corrupt, where thieves, they do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now we're going to take note today of three different areas where Jesus would require of us focus. This is only the first. And the first one has to do with the fact that we ought to focus or be sure that we are focusing on possessing true wealth. Now, I emphasize within that phrase that we possess true wealth. I emphasize the word true because sometimes we do not seek after true wealth. There are many in the world who believe themselves to be wealthy. There are many according to the world's standards who, in a matter of fact, are, are wealthy. If we measure it according to the material things, according to the possessions, there are many who are wealthy. And that's really undeniable in our society, and likewise it was then. But are those men and women truly wealthy? If you go back and look in this same verse, verse 19 I'm pointing out now, and you look at it and we're able to see it, and I'm not too good at this, but if you were able to see it in its original language where it would have been penned by the penman here, you would find out that these words in the Greek to lay up, he says lay not, he puts in the negative, lay not up for yourselves treasures. You'd find out the word treasure there. And two of the three words, lay not up, lay up, are the exact same Greek word. So basically what Jesus is saying here is that we ought not be treasuring treasures. Now where does man fall? Again, man falls in that he has a false idea or a misconception as to what true treasures really are. You know, Cameron loves to dig. I know as a child I did. I can, there's still holes in my mother's yard to prove it. But Cameron loves to dig, and one of the things he'll do oftentimes, especially when we're cooking, suffer, because he can go right out of the backyard, get right there at the foot of the kitchen window, and he'll sit and he'll dig. And oftentimes when he comes back, he has, in his mind at least, as a four-year-old, he has a great treasure. He may have a piece of broken glass. He may have a nut or a bolt, a piece of metal. And one time he even found a stone that he was absolutely certain and still believes is a true-to-life dinosaur egg. Now to him, that's treasure. But if you look at it from a real perspective, you know, even in this world, those things are not treasures. That's trash. But it's often the case that men misconstrue what true treasures are. And verse 19 shows that. Because Jesus first mentions to us in the idea of that we ought to be possessing true wealth, he makes mention of the corruptible riches that are in this world. 
Now, in Jesus' day and time, just to read the verse again, we'll see it if you'll be careful. He said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth, that's one word you can underline, and rust, that's another word you can underline, doth corrupt, and where thieves, you can underline that word, break through and steal. Why do we underline those words? Because in Jesus' day, I mean first century times and before, wealth was always measured in three major areas. Now, we may measure wealth in all manner of places. We may look to the home and the size of it and say, well, that contains wealth. Or we may look to the car and the speed of it, and that contains wealth. Or to the TV or the surround sound systems, all these things we may look to. But they looked to three major areas to decide who was wealthy and who was not. The first one had to do with garments, clothing. Because he said that these types of wealth, what type, Jesus? Earthly wealth, riches, had to do with that which the moth can eat. We understand what will happen to a garment. It doesn't happen so much as it once did, I suppose. We have mothballs and other things. We have tighter closets, maybe. But in days gone by, our parents and grandparents definitely understood what could happen to a garment that's left to be moth-eaten. You see, in that day and time, to have garments, and I mean to have garments, and I say plural, and I mean only two, you could have been considered wealthy. It didn't necessarily matter the exact quality or the exact material that that garment was made of. To have garments, period, was considered to be a way of measuring wealth. Now just consider it. Let's lay it out the way it ought to have been. Let's say that a man or woman, first of all, they go out and they purchase for themselves a lamb. And they wait for several years for that lamb to grow, and now we have a full-grown sheep. And then they, in turn, have to wait several months till the months would get right, maybe the winter we might think about, and they would have to shear that sheep. Then after shearing that sheep, they would then have to take that wool, take it in the house, put it upon some type of a spinning wheel and make thread out of it. Then turn around and put it upon some type of a loom to make cloth out of it. Then turn around and cut it back up and sew it back together to make a garment. Now, why do we illustrate it that way? Friends, that makes something valuable when you do it with your own hands. We don't always have that opportunity or do we ever take the time to have that skill, but that makes it valuable. That makes it to the extent that if someone were to knock on the door of a Jew in that day and say, I want to purchase the garment. I saw you out in the marketplace yesterday wearing a certain garment, and I want to purchase that from you, and I'll give you the price of, say, $10 in our money. They would say, oh, no way. No, there was a lot of labor. There was a lot put into that. Now, the rich of that day, they were known for laying up for themselves treasures in the way of garments. Why, the rich, they like many today, and really like common folk today, they had closets filled with choices. Closets filled with garments, and some of their garments were more valuable, whether they be purple. We know the color purple. The dyes that were put into that particular cloth were valuable in that day. Oftentimes they would be interwoven with gold or silver banding and such. They would be more valuable. What does Jesus say about that? He said, don't treasure that kind of treasure. Don't focus on the corruptible riches like garments. But secondly, they likewise put a lot of focus so far as measuring wealth anyway when it had also to do with grains. And when I mean grains, I mean primarily grain, but the whole of it would be food. Most of us, maybe sometimes it's a little more lax than others, but most of us at some point in time in our life have access to a good amount of food. 
We have access to go into a store and purchase that. Or we have access to turn then later and turn to our pantries or to our closets or our cabinets, wherever we might store that food away. And we can just simply just walk in and make choices there. We can decide what I want for lunch, what I want for supper, what I want for breakfast, or will I eat any of those meals based upon what we have in those pantries. Now in that day, a large part of their diet had to do with grains. It had to do with going out in the field and producing wheat and in turn grinding that and making all manner of things. Today we just basically look at flour and cornmeal. They had more than that that they would make out of those grains and those grains were considered, if you had those things, you were considered wealthy. We mentioned on a couple other occasions today about the rich young ruler. What was he guilty of doing? Why, he was guilty out of his own mouth of saying, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build greater. What are you going to put in them, ruler? I plan to put grain. He was a wealthy man by man's standards. But Jesus said what? Oh, don't treasure those treasures. But not only did it have to do with the garments, and it had to do with likewise the grains, it had to do with gold. Now, if we see treasures today, oftentimes that's where we recognize it. We recognize it in the physical gold, maybe the rings or the earrings or maybe the necklaces or bracelets or something someone might have. Or we recognize in with that precious jewel such as diamonds and other things. And if someone has those things, you can make an assumption at least that in some point or time in their life they have had a measure of wealth. And the majority of this country have those things to an extent. But in that day and time, it was even more special. These things were accessible to all. Gold was common. It was easily found, but it was not necessarily obtainable. Because most of the fields that were filled with these gold nuggets, or most, if we would find it today, we see people panning for gold. Most of the creeks or rivers that would have been taken by gold nuggets where these things had been found, the rich had already, because they owned the garments and the grains, they had already turned and traded those things and went out and purchased those fields and those rivers and streams. But it really didn't matter. Because Jesus said those are corruptible things. Those are things that pass away. You see the moth, he might eat the cloth. The word rust there just has to do with the grains that decay and that disintegrate for that matter. And of course he says the gold, why the thieves will break through and steal it. You see the word thieves there in your King James translations that you have? The word thieves there in its original language meant someone who would break through and in the most literal sense it was the word kleptos where we get our English word klepto and we extend that on to kleptomaniac, someone who steals and they steal constantly, but the word literally meant a mud digger. Their homes that day were formed primarily out of adobe or mud, and literally all that a man had to do to break into a home was to find that home. Oftentimes during the daytime, the home would be empty. The people would be out in the fields anyway. He would come to the back of that house. He might bring a bucket of water. It didn't really matter. He could throw that on the back of the house and wait. Just a few moments with the bare hand, he could begin to dig and he could make his way into that home. He said, thieves break through and steal those things. Don't treasure those things. But not only does Jesus mention in verse 19 the corruptible riches, he mentions in verse 20 the certain riches. 
because he goes on to turn that list on its head, if you will, to say, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What's so great about treasures in heaven, Lord? What would you have us to do that for? He says, in that place where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. You don't have to deal with that. Where thieves do not break through nor steal. If you'll treasure your treasure in the right place, if you'll stop taking earthly things and putting them on a pedestal in your mind and you'll focus on the treasure found in heaven and heaven only, then you'll be doing what God commands us to do. You say, well, preacher, we know all of that. We've read this passage time and time again. We've heard it to be quoted. Often it's quoted in an accusative manner. Often it's someone who's just trying to show me that they know more or they're better than I am. Of what does the Lord speak? How is it that a man can treasure treasures in heaven? How can he lay those things up? Well, I've referred to already the story, the account at least of the rich young ruler. Luke chapter 18, one of those accounts in verse 22, when he came to that ruler and he finally gets down to the gritty of the nitty and he turns and tells him, he says, you need to sell all that you have and give to the poor. And the last phrase there, he says, in doing so, you'll be laying up treasures in heaven. What do you mean, Jesus? Jesus said you can put your treasures in heaven and you can do it now. How, Lord? By giving to the poor. Obviously there are physically poor people in this world and all of us are poor compared to someone else. You might accuse that. But you can give to those poor and you can in turn lay up treasures in heaven. And there's definitely an application there, no doubt. That was the physical application then. But what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Not what is recorded in Luke 18. What does he say here? very beginning part there in chapter 5, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why, he says men, women can be poor in spirit. Now that has to do with those who actually have taken themselves, they've taken their own desires, their own concerns from this world and cast them off, and they're blessed for that. But it also proves on the negative that it is possible that a man can have a poor spirit in a positive sense is that, but you could also apply it to the negative. For instance, if you know of someone out in the world and they've never known anything about God, they've never had the opportunity or at least taken the opportunity to study God's Word, are they poor? Oh, they're poor. They're very poor. I've told you before about a man who approached Howard Hughes, I'm told, on the city streets in Texas on one occasion. He came up to him and he said, I want to tell you something. He said, I am much richer than you are. Howard said, oh, you couldn't be. How can you be much richer than I am? He said, because I have all that I want. You don't. Now, what did that man have? Well, you can make an assumption that that man may not have had any form of physical wealth, but he had true riches, and that was that he had taken the opportunity to find God, and Lord willing, had become a Christian and was now headed for heaven. That's where treasures are. These are certain treasures. We know how valuable those things are because we know how valuable God has set them up to be. Jesus tells us what? In John chapter 14, the first three verses, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. What type of preparation would he make? He would make it a place where the greatest of his people could dwell. 
but not only does he make mention here in this text of those corruptible riches, he makes mention of the certain riches, but I don't want to ever leave out verse 21. Because in verse 21, in my mind, he brings us to see that there is a challenging reality to these things. Jesus is not just speaking these words to be heard. He's not just saying these things as a matter of happenstance so that he could be seen as going from chapter 5 in our Bibles all the way through chapter 7 and the encapsulation of all of those words could be called the Sermon on the Mount. That's not why he says this. No, Jesus says this with a great direct point when he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, is that what men typically want to accept? Not really. We'll mention in just a moment when we get down to verse 24, typically what men will do in this instance, they'll say, well, just because I have riches, just because I have wealth, just because I've obtained these things, that doesn't mean that I am anywhere separated from God. And to an extent, that would be true. You want to put a passage in your Bible, you can put this one down. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul tells Timothy to charge them. That means in some senses to rebuke or to put pressure on, call their attention to, charge them that are rich in this world. And you say, well, there it is. You can't be rich. No, the next phrase says that they be not high-minded. There's a great difference between the man who treasures something on earth and someone who refuses to treasure something in heaven. Sometimes men and women do both, but he says this, it's where your heart is. That's what matters. You may have some of each in a physical way, so you think, but you cannot have one in the one side, I mean on earth, and then in turn have any in heaven if your heart's not pointed toward heaven first. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But not only does Jesus, in my mind, in the text, call upon us to focus on possessing true wealth. Likewise, he calls upon us to perceive true wisdom. Now again, we know that there are different types of wisdom. We know the Bible divides wisdom in two basic areas, the letters to the Corinthians. The first letter there at least divides between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. We know in our lives today, when you take man's wisdom, we then in turn subdivide it. And you say, well, someone might be wise in this area, wise in that area, and we have all manner of places and measures of higher learning colleges and universities where man can go, and he can supposedly obtain wisdom. But if you read here in verse 22 and 23, you'll find out something about that obtaining. Because he begins, read it with me, he says, For the light of the body is the eye. And therefore thine eye, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Now you have to understand in that day, when they saw the eye, they understood it perhaps better than we do, and it just didn't have to do with the thing that you use to perceive faces or to identify objects, or to make your way around through a place like this, to navigate in, on this earth. didn't have so much to do with that in their mind as it had to do with the eye being the opening to obtaining wisdom. So that's why he says in verse 22 to read again, For the light of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye be focused on this word in a moment, single, thy whole body shall be full of light. 
But then he turns it around. But if thine eye be evil, what types of eyes are there now? There's a single eye and an evil eye. If thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? So what types of eyes do we have? Well, the language here is translated one that is single and one that is evil. We'll talk about the single eye for a moment. What does it mean to have a single eye? Well, if you had a single eye in your body and you only had one of the two that's typically found in mankind, would that really change your ability to see? Not so much. Maybe some peripheral vision will be lost on one side or the other, but overall, most of us, if our eyes are healthy at least, we can cover the one and we can see somewhat. We can cover the other and we can see somewhat. But what did you speak of here? Well, before we get to too much of trying to understand that, I want you to move with me for just a moment. The only time we'll move today. Move to the book of Proverbs for just a moment and go to chapter 4. We're talking about perceiving true wisdom. And there's a statement made in Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and I'll just read all of it down to verse 7. You'll hear it when we get to it. He says in verse 4, Solomon the writer here, the penman on behalf of God says, And he taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Now let's just say this very quickly. In order for man to live, spiritually speaking, he has to first retain the words of God and keep the commandments. That's two words in English we would call verbs or action verbs, and they must be done in order to live. But verse 5, he says, get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline the words of thy mouth, forsake her not. Now her, the word her, and also the word she in this verse, verse 6, is just wisdom. He uses a, a feminine pronoun to represent wisdom. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee, and love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, verse 7. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get thee understanding. What do we need, God? Well, he mentions two things, or three, really, throughout the text, if you really see it for what it is. He mentions one word, uh, doesn't actually use the word, but we know one of them is present, that's knowledge. Because he talks about retaining the words that are there, someone who draws in knowledge, so we have knowledge, what is that? Well, the root word would prove it, to know. Then he mentions also in the text here on the other side of that spectrum, there's something that has to be called understanding. What does that mean? Well, it means to perceive or to conceive. The idea is there that we hear or we see or we do or we learn, and we know what we're doing. But neither one of those can be seen as being the principal thing. The principal thing is wisdom. Oh, certainly one has to have knowledge in order to obtain wisdom. Certainly knowledge that is not understood is of no use to anyone. But the principal thing is wisdom. What is wisdom? The best explanation I've ever found as far as wisdom can be described is that wisdom is knowledge coupled with understanding and then personified. That's a big fat word we don't use in Alabama or Mississippi that literally means to bring life. 
except I bring life to what I know and what I supposedly understand, except I bring life, which is through practice, I don't really have anything. Now that's just a statement, really, in my mind that sets up the situation back in our text. Because you go back into Matthew chapter 6, we'll just read it again, the first part of it at least, verse 22. For the light of the body is the eye, and if therefore the eye be single, the whole body shall be full of light. How do you know the body's full of light? Through knowledge, through understanding, but primarily through wisdom. This has to do with a single eye. Do we have any evidence of exactly how an eye can be seen as being single? Put this in your margin, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2. Paul said out of his own mouth, Well, I have determined, meaning I've set my mind to and I've set it hard to, I have determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's a single eye. That's an eye that can focus. Some people are born with, some people by accident, whatever it might be, they have what we would call today, their eyes become crossed. That may mean that they cross, or that may mean that one just doesn't look in the same direction as the other, and they have difficulty focusing. But the single eye will never have that difficulty. Again, you, you cover the one. It causes it to become stronger. But not only is there the single eye, the next verse we read there, verse 23 speaks of the sinful eye. You say, well, my translation says evil. Mine does too. But the word evil there literally means to be doubled. That's really the contrast between the single and the evil is one is single, one, and the other is doubled, and it speaks of double vision. Now James tells us, if you review this part of the text, in James 1 and verse 8, he says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Not some, not a few, but he's a, he is unstable in all of his ways. What does that mean? Does that mean that if a man reads through the Bible, he says, well, God says I ought to do this, this, and this, and I accept that, but over here I'm not really so sure what God meant, so I think I'll just leave this part out for a while, or, or I'll study it farther, I'll try to decide what God means later, or I'll ask this source or that one, and I'm not really sure. Maybe God meant something for them at one point, but he's changed it for me. Double-minded. Unstable in all of his ways. I don't reference movies too much for illustration, but I will reference this one, Rocky IV. I'm not promoting any of these movies. You may or may not have seen them. whole trilogy of movies, but in Rocky IV, Rocky gets to a point uh, that Drago, the big Russian guy, had already slain his best friend, Apollo Creed. He gets in the ring with him. He's fighting, and he's fighting hard. Both of his eyes are basically swelled shut. He's beat to a pulp, as he always is in those movies. And he makes his way back over to the corner of the ring there, and he's got plenty of people giving advice. One of them is his drunk brother-in-law. I emphasize that. And Rocky makes this statement. He says, I see three of them out there. You know what the drunk brother-in-law said? Hit the one in the middle. Well, that might be good advice if it hadn't been coming from an alcoholic. But even if it were, he's still got to know which one's in the middle. The problem comes in this. Many people who are double-minded don't know it. When I was at exit 32.1, not that there is one, I didn't know it. 
I didn't know it. I thought I had it. I thought I was focused. But I was far from it. What happens when one has double vision? When one tries to eye the things of this world and at the same time tries to keep an eye on God. You know, we tell our children sometimes, I got one eye on you. You don't. You may put both. You don't have one eye on them. Not in focus. Well, Judges 21-25 spoke of a group of people called the Israelites at that point. And the Bible says there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. What is that? That is morality based on majority. What's the, what's the majority of the world doing? That must be right. I pray to God nobody would measure their morality by that, but too many do. Too many even look into the church and they say, well, what does the average member do? Do they show up all the time the doors are open? No. Is that what's right? Absolutely not. Does the average member participate in some of these worldly events? Do they watch these worldly programs? Do they go to these worldly places? Honestly, yes. But it's not right. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Why? Because the Israelites were guilty and they were hindered at that time by double vision. That's why later Jesus would say in Matthew 15 and verse 34 there, He said, if the blind lead the blind, they're both going to fall into a ditch. If Jennifer had never driven from our hometown in Alabama to here and she started naming exits for us to turn off on, we would have never gotten here not by her lead. I wasn't paying any attention. He says you need to focus. And therefore we need to focus on true wisdom. Now Paul recorded in Romans 1 and 22 about a group of people. And I can't help but wish I had suspenders on because they professed themselves to be wise and at the same time became fools. They said they knew it all. They said they had it down pat. And they were a fool. I told you before, I mentioned it before, I don't know if I'll ever get over it. I was introduced to a man not too long after I came here who assured me that because of his 30 years of preaching the gospel, he no longer had to study as a fool. I don't mean that negatively. I don't mean that in any unloving way. Any child of God, including this one right here, if he says he's obtained, he's a fool. Perceive true wisdom. But not only does Jesus speak to us about possessing true wealth and perceiving true wisdom, I think the most misunderstood verse, because sometimes it's just thrown out because of its content, has to do with focusing on practicing true worship. Focusing on practicing true worship. You recognize the verse, verse 24. For no man can serve two masters. What are the options if he does? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now let me just stop right here, because before we go any further, we need to discuss what I'm calling the argument. What's the argument? The argument for too many of my brethren and yours is that they read across this verse, and they say, well, it's just not really true. 
God is taking the extreme view on this, similar to I've already mentioned a part of it. He's taking the extreme view on this, and he's telling me that if I have any love at all for the world, I must hate him. If I in turn have any regard or I hold to the things of this world, if I have the fine house, if I have the nice cars and the swimming pool, if I have those things, I must despise him. And that's not true. I don't, I don't hate God. I don't despise God. And with that way of thinking, you can say, well, if I had a pen knife right now, I'd just take that verse out. It cannot be true. I know many of fine children of God who have wealth and who have riches, and they don't hate or despise God either one. What's he saying? You can put these references in your margin. I think it would easily help you to understand. You go back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29, verses 30 and 31. Now, the character there that's spoken of is Jacob. Jacob had had opportunity because of his labor, seven years apiece, he had had opportunity to marry two women, Leah and Rachel. Now he had wanted the one the whole while, but in turn his father-in-law had tricked him in some way and gave him the ugly duckling. That's basically what the Bible calls her. Less desirable. He gives her first, and then he turns and has to work for the other. But now he's obtained both of them. By Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31, the Bible there speaks of Leah and says that she that he loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. You see the word hated? Now that's in the Hebrew, but it translates itself in the Greek to be an equal word to the one in the text. Did he hate Leah? Boy, I hadn't met a person yet that married anybody that hated And Lalong had children with her. Something else. What about in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26 when Jesus there speaking of those who would follow him and be his disciples said that in order for one to do that they would have to hate father and mother. You mean hate? Despise? Be turned off to? Turned against? That doesn't make good sense. Even farther than that, you can fast forward a bit and you can find a point in John 12 and verse 25 when Jesus said if a man should follow him, he would have to hate his own self. Despise, hate, not in our sins. From Genesis chapter 29, on in the book of Luke and on in the book of Matthew and on into this text, the word literally means to love less. That's all. Properly, clearly translated means to love less. So let's read it that way. Jesus says, no man, not one man. Somebody says, I can do it. No, no, not one man. No man can serve two masters. For either he will love less the one and love the other. Or else he will hold to the one and love less the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. That's the argument that really brings itself right into the application. And I don't have to expand on it, I don't think. If I love God less than anything else, 
I essentially, for the English, modern terms, I may as well hate him. I may as well. Jesus stated in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. I may as well hate him. Even in the modern sense of the word hate. The one so despised, we often teach our children, don't use that word. You don't hate anybody. You don't hate anything. I might as well. If I love God less, then I love the things of this world. But Jesus is talking about what here? Worship. You say, how do you get worship out of this verse? I know, Jim, you were looking for a W word. You had wealth, and you in turn had wisdom, and you needed another word. No, I didn't. He said, no man can serve two masters. The Greek word there, kurios, can be easily translated Lord, God, Supreme One, Most Highs. What do we do for God? John 4 and 24, Jesus said, Out of his own mouth, by the very breath of God, as he would have always spoken, said that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. We must worship Him. Somebody says about this verse, I have two masters, I work two jobs. No, you have two employers. That's not the same. Well, I feel like I'm enslaved to both of them. Well, you may feel that way, but above all of that, you ought be, as a child of God, enslaved to and have one master and one master only, and that is God. When the Apostle Paul, Saul at that point, was laying upon the ground blinded, and he looked up, and he asked the question, I pray to God I would ask today, Who art thou, Lord? He said, who are you, Master, God, Supreme One? He wasn't confused. He knew. That's why I believe when he was instructed to go on to the city of Damascus and he would be farther instructed as to what it was that he was to do, he would do it. We need to focus on practicing true worship. When do we worship God? Somebody says all of life is worship. Puzzling to me that when Abraham was headed up the mountainside with his son Isaac, he turned there in the midst of a regular day when he loved God with all of his heart. He turned there in the midst of that regular day and he said to those men who were left behind, he said, you stay here while my son and I go yonder and worship. Now, if all of life was worship, they were worshiping walking. That's not true. When do we worship God? Well, we do it during different times in our life when we pray to Him. We can do it when we sing praises unto Him. That's to give homage. That's all we're talking about. But primarily, we do it right here on the Lord's Day. And they that worship Him must worship Him 
in spirit and in truth. And even though I hold a position in a pew, I may not be worshiping. Because right smack in the middle of this text, I don't know that the topic ever changed. The illustration changes on three occasions. But the topic never changes. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where will your treasure be throughout the rest of your life? Will it be focused upon true wealth, true wisdom, and true worship? You know, many people say, well, God has a place in my life. He doesn't want a place. Others say, well, God has prominence in my life. That's, that's the thing I do on, on Sunday. He doesn't want that. He wants preeminence. And preeminence is a big flowering term that describes someone who recognizes God as being first. It has to do with the Old Testament giving of the first fruits. What did God accept by the way of sacrifice? Only the first fruits. Only that which without blemish. Can I give God any less? This is a focus we must have. Not one of these texts that Jesus has ever proclaimed or will, especially here in the Sermon on the Mount, as I've said over and over, has to be with a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of good thought. It's a matter of obligation. And what upsets me, and I'm just speaking personally for right here, some people's obligation will not be to worship God tonight. You know it. You could raise your hand now. It tears my heart out. Because your treasure's in the world. You've taken wisdom from men. And that's not worship. You've got two masters. You say, well, Jim, you'll be waiting for me not to come back. Except the Lord would touch your heart today. You won't be back. I know. You know. You say, well, if I come back, will you think better of me? Will the church think better of me? Not until God can. He looks to the heart. You're here this morning. You're not a child of God. I pray to God you lay up for true wealth. Treasures in heaven are found in those who search out the words that come down from heaven, they learn from them. They obey them through faith. That is to believe upon, to rely upon God for your every soul's desire. Through repenting of your sins, confessing His name, then in turn to be baptized. Why? To have your sins to be washed away. That's all a part of beginning to place your affections on things above. It's all a part of focusing on true wealth. Maybe you're here this morning and you hadn't been doing that. You can look at the picture on the back of your bulletin. I don't know who that is, but it could be me. I guarantee it's every angel in heaven today. They're praying for your soul. So you say, well, I'm here every time the doors are open. I'm focused. Maybe not. How many times have you wondered what you might have for lunch? How many times have... Has your mind strayed? 
How many times is your heart focused on something else? It may be a matter of heart. It may be a matter of secret, but it's open to God. If you're here this morning, you are a child of God's, and for whatever reason, this is a focus you must find. And when I say find, we all have to continue to seek after it. Because it's the treasures in heaven we need to be laying up. Won't you do that this morning while together we stand as we sing?